see we're on a mission from God. podcast. I'm your host, The Q, and today I have a longtime online friend with me. We've never actually met in person, but we've we've had conversations, you know, real-time conversations, but this is the first extended face-to-face that we're recording and sharing out with the world. This is the amazing Canadian Bob LeDrew. Hey there. Who I will add has a radio show, so you can expect the highest quality audio content. Only the finest. Eh, what? Sit, what? Uh, and <laughs> Is that like radio people humor? No, no, that's just my <laughs> twisted sense of humor. Okay. Um, all right, Bob. We, uh, we actually met through a online private group that we were both part of and have several online friends, mutual friends. Shout out to those weirdos. Uh, we've spent eight eight years or something like that. Like I've known you for almost a decade. Maybe, I know, maybe a decade. Yeah, it's it's one of the one of the strange things about the internet is that ability for people to have long standing relationships that are completely virtual. Yeah, is that a good thing? Oh, I think, yeah. I mean, it can be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I mean, that's not to say that you can also have longstanding dysfunctional relationships Uh that are completely virtual, (laughs) but, but yeah, no, I, I know tons of people online who I've never had the opportunity to meet as, as someone, um, someone up here refers to it as protein form. (laughs) Never, never met in protein form, but, uh, yeah, no, I think it's a, I think it's a very cool thing. Yeah. My, my biggest concern about that is that I do consider people that I meet online to be, I, I consider myself in a relationship with them at some level, you know, not obviously not everybody's at the same level. I have very close friends and I have associates and colleagues, but because there's a, um, you can, you can meet so many more people online than you can if you're just limited to, you know, physical space and I, I often feel like, and because I'm kind of greedy about meeting people and because, you know, people are so interesting to me, I kind of feel like I get overextended sometimes. Like I, yeah. I, I have too many people that I really want to be in a relationship with. And I don't know that that's possible. And then I start feeling like, oh no, shit's falling through the cracks. Like I'm forgetting birthdays or I'm forgetting this or I'm forgetting that. So that's the only really complicated part for me. I I have see I have a similar I have a similar issue because uh-huh. there was a period early on in Facebook there was a period where I would friend just about anybody who I interacted with I I had people in my friends list who were colleagues at various workplaces and stuff and then I got to a point where I started to think about what being a Facebook friend meant mm-hmm. and I decided that I was only going to friend people from then on who I had actually met in physical space with. Mm -hmm. And then 
I, of course, reserve, reserve the right to make exceptions to that rule at any given time. But when I would tell people that, like, and you know, you know how it is, you get requests from people a lot, uh-huh. uh, you know, some, some of which are actually legit and not just scams. But I, and I would say, look, you know, I'm trying to maintain my friends list at people who I have only physically met. And so, some people get upset about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. And if for some reason you decide to unfriend people who, frankly, you haven't engaged with, like you may, ne- like it's been years since I've heard from some of these people on Facebook, I will unfriend them. And inevitably they send me a message like, why did you unfriend me? What? We, yeah. we never talk. How are we friends? Yeah. <laughs> it's very weird. Yeah. Okay. We're going to start out with my um, infamous set of icebreaker questions. It's Absolutely. Really not exciting stuff, but you can make it exciting. You, you, make it. you wait. <laughs> okay. Question number one. What was the last thing that you watched on TV? Uh, literally the last thing was a newscast. Oh, bummer. Sorry. Was there any, did they say anything interesting? Was it breaking news at least? Well, it was good news. We, they, they were announcing that the second a second vaccine has been approved by oh. the Canadian uh, regulatory authorities. So, oh, you Canadians, more vaccines for us! Yay! <laughs> this is how it's going to be, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, it's a really it's an interesting thing because the strategy up here in Canada around the vaccinations was we literally have orders in for enough vaccines to vaccinate every Canadian twice over. Wow. Like we went all in on various vaccines and we spread it around a whole bunch of different vaccine candidates, which now that things are getting approved and vaccines are starting to roll out, people are, are going yay. But then now people are asking, I think, pretty legitimate questions about a very well off first world country having such a dominant position on vaccines when there are third world countries who simply don't have the scratch to, to vaccinate their people the way that we up here do. Um, So it's, 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 it's always interesting, right there. It's interesting to me how almost everything is more complicated than you think it is at first. Uh Uh-huh. That is true. You know? Yeah. It's Although like, I have to more say, more vaccines, a... yay! Wait a second. You right, know? just the fact that you're grappling with that question though is is incredibly Canadian. <laughs> like I don't think Americans would even we'd be like, hell yeah, fuck yeah, Americans vaccinated, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, suck at other countries. <laughs> we 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 try we pr- we try to put up a nice front. Yes, that's <laughs> okay. that's what we do. <laughs> All right, question number two. What is the last book that you read? Uh. Reading or completed? Uh, it, it just reading. You don't. Reading, I, I'm a big believer that you don't have to complete books if okay. they really aren't doing it for you. Currently reading Utopia Avenue by David Mitchell. Hmm. David Mitchell wrote Cloud Atlas and yeah. uh, Black Swan Green, and so this is a book club book for okay. us, and it's sort of late '60s, late '60s British rock and roll uh, fiction. Is it good? <laughs> I'm not decided yet. It's a good story. Um, 
but I kind of feel like it's really, I'm trying to decide whether it's too easily written. Mm. Okay. I don't know if, I don't know if it, it just feels a bit facile to me. Is it's it like, oh, for marketability. I almost kind of feel that way, mm. but it's like, oh, and then David Bowie showed up. Oh, and then Brian Jones is there. Oh, and then there's, you know, and so, and then the other thing that's kind of ticked me off about the whole thing is that there has been almost no mention of the Kinks, which are my absolute favorite British band. There, you got your Beatles people and your Stones people, uh-huh. and then you maybe have your Who people over there, and I'm over in the corner with the other Kinks fans, <laughs> both of them. <laughs> well, that is, um, yeah, that makes me that in and of itself makes me think that it was written for marketability. Yeah, so I don't know. It's it, I'm enjoying the story, but would I, will I, having finished this thing, say that it's a great book? I'm not yet convinced that I will. Aha. Uh-huh. Okay. It, it'd kind of be like a good beach read. Oh, okay. I like, I think that is a category of book. I yeah. believe in that. Um, I, so there was a point in my life, I was in high school. My mom took me to a library in downtown Salt Lake City. And it was the, I, I love libraries, but this was the biggest library I'd ever been to. It was multi-story, huge. And when I went in there, I remember having this, sense this overwhelming sense of like sadness because it occurred to me in that moment that I will never get to read every book right like I was just like shit I'm gonna miss out in my life there's just no way I'm gonna be able to read everything I want to read and so I have adopted it took me a while to get here but I've adopted this policy of you are not bound to no pun intended, read or finish every book that you read. If you read a book and it is not compelling, then go on to the next one because, because there's no, like time is limited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's more books all the time. All the time. It's so scary when you think about it. You're like, oh my yeah. God, I'm, it's, just, it's your mortality staring you in the face. I, I, I work in a library and that's, one of the things that I discovered when I started to work in, in libraries is the weeding process. <laughs> and when people, when patrons get wind uh, that, you know, hey, see that big recycle bin over there? That's full of books. They freak out. How, how can you be throwing out the books? And I'm like, but wait, <laughs> if we don't throw out the books, where are we going to put the new books? We're going to run out of shelf space. So what do you want us to do? Stop yeah. buying books and keep all the old books? Or do you want us to, you know, have to make some tough decisions? Man, that's hardcore, Bobla Drew. That's hardcore. That I hurts. Know. See, yeah. it's always, it's more complicated than, <laughs> you know, you think library, buy all the books. You can't buy all the books. Yeah. You can't keep no. all the books. No, no, but that's so sad. I, you know, and I also have, because the uh, a couple episodes before this i interviewed a friend of mine um who is a librarian and i have a really deep connection with public libraries right when i was a kid they were like havens for me i spent a lot of time in them i still have like 
like really intense dreams sometimes about being in those libraries. Like I really bonded with the public library Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I kind of view books like them as like sacred spaces and books as like holy objects and like librarians as like really important people. (laughs) And and so when I like, I don't think that I want to know about the nuts and bolts of the library business. You don't (laughs) want to see the sausage getting made. No, no, I don't want to see the sausage getting made. Like all those books that you're recycling, just tell me that you take them up to some somebody's, you know, a farm. Yeah, <laughs> the books, the books go out and they play in the pasture <laughs> with the rabbits, George. Exactly, exactly. I want to believe that. <laughs> sure, that's what happens. Okay, thank you. Yep. Um, all right, and the last question is, what did you have for breakfast? I had a very, very boring standard breakfast. There are certain things that I'm really boring about. And so weekday breakfast is pretty much the the same thing every day for me. A couple of slices of toast, raspberry jam, only raspberry jam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't see the point of other jams. Raspberry jam and uh, and a bowl of cereal. um, Kind of cereal. And and coffee. Uh, Fiber one. This is a lot of carbs you got going on. It's like colon blow basically <laughs> yes <laughs> nice enough fiber to you know for four thousand boxes of raisin bran yeah yes. yeah and and then coffee and yeah and... uh that's respectable i mean I, yeah i i don't think it has to be you know spectacular you don't have to be eating eggs benedict every day or whatever but um i do think that i want to hear more about your passionate position on raspberry jam <laughs> <laughs> I just like raspberry jam a lot. You do, um, but you are also yeah. like disdainful of other jams. Like it's raspberry, but you don't even see the point of other jams. No, Come on, Bob. Is, no, I mean they're they're just they're not my jam. Um, <laughs> yeah. let, let, let me take a moment to compote myself. Uh, <laughs> okay, are you doing this? Is this off the cuff? Are you actually doing this as we're talking, or have you put this thought is, into this? This is me. No, this is the way it is in my head. As, as I've said to, to other people, including colleagues, I said, you may think it's charming, but imagine what it's like in there 24 hours a day. So, you know, feel bad for me, feel bad for my partner who has to deal with more of it than anybody else outside of me. But yeah, that's the way it is. Wow. But no, I just think it's, it's actually, it's really weird, but it started off in my life. My dad was a marmalade guy. Oh, and marmalade just never did it for me. Wow. Just really weird flavors uh, and just didn't seem right. And raspberries are my favorite berry. I will eat strawberries. I will eat other berries. But when it comes to jam, it's just, it's raspberry. It's that right combination of sweet and tart. And uh-huh. there's all the little seedy bits. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's the one. Is there a particular brand that you prefer? <laughs> my when i'm well it's not when i'm feeling luxurious because there are also certain things that i will cheap out on i'm a smuckers guy that's Uh the usual like grocery store brand but every so often my partner will be somewhere and pick up like fancy raspberry jam and that will that will be like ooh, <laughs> ooh the six dollar bottle of jam wow yeah and it'll it'll be lovely but you know if truth be told like if it were up to me it would just be smuckers got it got it well i have to say 
Smuckers is solid. I also really, really like uh, raspberry jam. I mean, I do. I think it's top three, maybe. But I'm also a marmalade person. I do like the marmalade. Fair enough. I don't judge other people for for this. This is purely <laughs> a, a this is purely a thing that you know I know is is probably unique to me. That's okay. No, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued by it. Also, I have to say, I am kind of a sucker for um, like bespoke jams or or salsas or pickles or anything that like you go and it's got clearly some handmade elements to it. Then, you know. The artisanal movement. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. Of anything that's jarred. Yeah. In a jar. Yeah. 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 Um, okay. All great responses. Uh, you've done well so far. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so, so let's, much. Let us proceed now with the. Or as uh, we say in Canada, sorry. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, you're in Ottawa, right? That is correct. Yeah. Okay. Anything that my primarily American listening audience should know about Ottawa? Um, like my, in my experience, at least, like many capital cities, it's not the most exciting city in the country, not the most exciting city in the world. Uh, Canberra in Australia, not the most exciting city in Australia. Ottawa, probably not the most exciting city. Very pretty, very mm-hmm. picturesque. We have yes. a canal going down the middle of the, the city, uh, which is lovely to cycle pa- cycle along in, in the summer. And then of course, skate along in the winter. And our signature, our two signature sort of street foods are the shawarma, Oh, yes. And the beaver tail. What? The beaver tail. Is that uh, like an, what? Is it's it a, a pastry. Real beaver tail? No, no, it's okay, not good. a real. Thank no, that would be God. gross. The beaver tail is uh, a piece of pastry roughly shaped like a beaver tail. Oh. So kind of like a flattened football sort of look, uh-huh, right? Uh-huh. Or oval. And then tossed in, uh, tossed in oil and deep fried. Uh, till it gets nice and crispy and then a variety of toppings so you can get like your hazelnut beaver tail uh or the probably the the big favorite in ottawa is what's called the killaloo sunrise Mm -hmm. which is cinnamon sugar and a squirt of lemon juice Ooh, very good (sighs) if you're in if you're skating on the canal you're pretty much obligated to stop at the beaver tail shack and pick yourself up a beaver tail and uh and that's true the beaver tail shack the beaver tail shack we have huts on the ice Canada and is you, a marvelous you skate place. along and you have yourself a beaver tail and maybe a cup of cocoa have you ever had a beaver tail with raspberry jam on it oh my god no well you really... should you should my, my life is yeah that's that's gonna be the I'm going to show up the beaver tail hut with like a little jar. (laughs) I'll just have a plain one. BYOJ. Do it myself. (laughs) Spreading my jam. (laughs) Okay, I have to say that that sounds fucking amazing. Like, I really, that I want this now, this moment. I would like to have that. It is pretty magical. There was, there was a period when my, my partner was taking a class and, uh, in the winter and I would, uh, she was taking a class and it was quite near the canal. So I would drive her down to her class and then I'd just find a parking spot and I would uh, go and skate for two hours while she was in her class. 
and it, it was it was a quite magical winter that year for me wow. just because i had those two hours of just and our canal goes the the skating part of it when it's fully open is about seven miles uh, so you can skate for a long time wow what yeah, it's known this as the world's. This is like not an ice rink. This is like an ice. No, it's it is the canal, <sighs> and they they drain it down to a, a, a low level so that it will freeze quickly and easily, and then they maintain it, and so you have like trucks that drive on it and and you know flood the surface and and maintain the surface. So in a good winter, you can get maybe eight to eight or nine weeks of skating on the canal. Wow. Yeah, that's got to be a good it, workout. Oh, it's yeah. It's it is very tiring. Like, yeah. If you if you skate the full length of the canal, that's a that is a very good workout. So then you can afford to eat all the beaver tails you want. That to me is the main reason to exercise. Uh -huh. Like I'm a cyclist too, and I ride. I argue that I ride just so that I can eat yeah. whatever I want. I hear you. I'm yeah. done with that. Okay, talk to me about now. You grew up. You grew up in Canada, but you said. If I remember correctly, you're from Nova Scotia. That's right. Yes. East Coast. Right. Yes. Yes. And so at what point did you move to Ottawa and why? Moved to Ottawa um, in the 90s, in the mid 90s. Um, I had done uh, a degree in psychology, which uh, was supposed to have led to a graduate career in psychology uh, and didn't. Uh, as I was finishing up my honors thesis, I just decided that that wasn't the path I wanted to take. So I, wow. I had no idea what to do. I was in a part of Nova Scotia called Cape Breton, which is resource-based economy and all of the resource jobs were drying up. So it was very depressed uh, economically, unemployment, like hugely up. So think Appalachia, north at the border. Mm -hmm. um, and so here I am with a, a bachelor's degree in psychology and English lit uh, in a place where all of the people were miners and steelworkers and fishermen and loggers. And, you know, yeah, my, my credentials weren't good. So I ended up being a freelance journalist. Uh, ah. I literally walked into a radio station uh, the public broadcaster here, the CBC, I walked into the local CBC station and said, I think I could do radio. Is there someone here who could teach me how to do that? And really? someone did. Yes. What? Yeah, I know. It's a different time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, fortunately, the, the executive producer there had been one of the first people involved in community radio in Canada. And he had been part of what was known as the radio revolution in CBC, where it went from a very sort of stilted, anachronistic 1940s kind of, and as we go to the news, then we'll have be back with the women's hour with Jane Smith, you know, right. and that sort of like really stilted, uh, I don't want to say pretentious, but it felt feels pretentious to modern ears went from that to a much looser version of current affairs. So it, it, if you think of NPR programs like Fresh Air mm -hmm. or Morning Edition, those sorts of programs with a Canadian spin and a Canadian feel to them. So he had been involved in those early days and he saw the value in bringing in fresh voices. And so 
instead of having me thrown out, uh, said, okay, well, what do you got? And so I had some stuff that I had written and he said, uh, okay, we can work with this. And off, uh, and I started, so within a couple of weeks, I was doing stuff. Wow. I know it's a miracle. Wow. How, how much more, how much better would the world be if that was the hiring process? Like if somebody who really was interested in doing something, like was able to just walk in and be like, I want to do this, put me to work. Yeah. That would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. Okay. Why so anyway, so as a freelance journalist, worked, did that for a few years. Okay. Uh, my partner and I, uh, she she's also from Cape Breton. And we decided that it was time to uh, move in together and leave the island and head to the big city, which is Halifax, Nova Scotia. Mm -hmm. uh, and by big, I mean 400,000. So not really big, but by our standards, big. So we moved to Halifax, uh, stayed in journalism for a few years, but I was feeling like it wasn't, I kind of felt like I had reached where I could go with it. So I went back to school and studied PR. And as my PR program was finishing, my partner got the opportunity to move to Ottawa for a temporary assignment. She had joined the federal government uh, as a public servant. And so they offered her a three-month assignment in Ottawa. So three months, we sort of said, okay, we can do this. And then three months where they were like, hey, you want to stay for another three? And she's okay. And so then in the middle of the second three months, they, they were like, if we made a position for you, would yeah. you come? And I was finishing up. And so I had no real ties to keep me there. So we're like, yeah, let's try Ottawa. What's the worst that can happen? Um, and so we've been here ever since. Wow. And so what do you do now? What's your so full-time job? I, I don't have a full-time job. I have part-time job because I'm old. Uh, and uh, Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Uh, no, I work part-time for the Ottawa Public Library, okay. um, which is a chain of, of 33 branches around yep. the city. Um, and yeah, I have a part-time job at the library. That's awesome. That yeah. is awesome. That is my goal. I am going to now live my life in a way that will allow me to end up in a place where I can skate for two hours every day, eat beaver tails and work part-time at a public library. It's it's not all beer and Skittles, Amanda. <laughs> Don't lie to me, Bob. The, there is a dark side. You are living a good life. <laughs> I am actually. Okay. Now what I want to know, um, but uh, so I'm, I'm curious to know what it was about radio that appealed to you. Cause you said you were into, you know, interested in doing journalism, journalism, isn't always radio it's other yeah. things so there's a reason why you specifically wanted to do radio so i had always listened to the my household was a cbc radio household so the we heard the radio was on a lot and i'm not sure i realized it at the time when i was just a kid and and made this audacious move but radio is really it's an intimate format mm -hmm. and it's even gotten more intimate with things like podcasting. Someone once said that uh, someone, a guy named Todd Maffin once said that when podcasts came along, it got more intimate because all of a sudden people were putting little things in their ears and listening. So instead of that sort of like, and as we watch the Hindenburg majestically float into Lakehurst, New Jersey, <laughs> right. Instead of that, which was designed for crappy microphones and 
crappy speakers so yeah. that you could hear what was going on. All of a sudden, people are literally talking into your ear. Right. Right. And right. you can get like this. And it's a really intimate form of communication. Right. And so radio is always traded in imagination. And in an early producer, I came back to do a story one day and the guy said, don't tell me that 300 people were laid off at a fish plant. And that was, that was the story. Tell me about one guy who got laid off. And another time I came in and I was doing a story about Tim Horton donuts and Tim Horton's is like the Dunkin' Donuts of oh, Canada. Yes. Yes, we've um, and I wanted to sort of calculate how many donuts were consumed in Cape Breton in a year. And so I went to Tim Hortons. I said, how many donuts the average store make? And they said, I don't know, let's say 3000 a day. And so I figured, okay, so there's 20 Tim Hortons. That's 6,000 a day times 365 days. And so I did this cal and I did my math and I was like, okay, so that's that many. And he's like, no, I don't want the number. I'm like, you don't want the number. He said, don't tell me a number illustrate the number for me. And so I went back to my, you know, my little desk and was working away and trying to figure out how to illustrate it. And I figured out that if you took the number of donuts that were consumed in Cape Breton in a year and you were to encircle the island with donuts, that you could have a wall of donuts like the Great Wall of China that would be a foot high with just one year's donut consumption. And what? you could completely, you could completely, you know, and so Is I brought that back true? This... Do they make 3,000 donuts? A... Well, I can't remember. It's the 1980s, Amanda. Okay, I'm just saying that's know. a shit ton of donuts. Well, but think about your average donut shop, right? Uh -huh. You know, people go in for a dozen, people go in and, you know, get their own donuts for their coffee, but then people are going in for their offices and things like that. You know, it's yeah. a lot of donuts. Damn. But the... The point was that I came up with this image of yeah. Cape Breton, you know, with this, this wall of donuts protecting it from the mainlanders. <laughs> and he, he was like, yes, that tells me how many donuts, you know, he, and he taught me the power of figuring out an, uh, an image and the, the, of sort of illustrating things rather than just using numbers. And once I started to get into that and sort of get, taught and mentored by these people that was the really the magic and even all the way through my life in one way or another whether it's been freelancing and even after i started doing pr and communications there was a cbc show uh, a business show and i was their pr columnist for a long time so every every week or every couple of weeks i would go into a studio and do a little pr bit for them um so radio has been this constant in my life, even though I've never, I've never really had a, a full-time permanent job in radio, but I've always had a, my little fingers never been out of the water. Yeah. Have and you ever thought about doing a podcast? Oh, I've done. Yeah. I've done a, a few podcasts. Okay. Yeah. Right. I did one about Stephen King for, for a number of years, which oh, was you did? fun. Yeah. 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 Is it still around? I, I don't even know if it's still up. I'd have to look on iTunes. Oh. It's been a while. They may have, it may have been weeded. Um, but uh, my, the best part of that 
was getting to have breakfast with Stephen King's assistant one day in uh, in Bangor. What? What? Yeah. We were traveling through because Maine is on the way to Nova Scotia. Yeah. So when we would go home to visit family, if we were driving, uh, we would usually drive through the states and uh, cross over in upstate New York and then head east and cross through Maine and go from Maine into New Brunswick. So at one point, once I had started doing the podcast, it was not uncommon for me to be talking with his assistant. And so I said, hey, we're heading, you know, we'll, we'll drive past, we'll wave on our way. And she's like, well, don't wave. She said, are you going to stop in Bangor? And I said, well, we, we could. She said, well, you know, let me know when you're stopping. We'll have breakfast. Nice. Yeah, it was great. Breakfast. I didn't have toast and jam that day. That was, that was like, that was like full breakfast, you know, because we we actually went, there's a place uh, just outside of Bangor called Dysart's, which is like your gas station, truck stop kind of place. Mm -hmm. And he, apparently Stephen King likes this place enough that he put it in one of his, his books. Oh. Uh, and so an alien actually goes to Dysart's, which is known by the locals as dry farts. Um, <laughs> Great. <laughs> and the alien goes to Dysart's and eats his first meat ever, oh. uh, which is bacon and oh. becomes absolutely mad for it, uh, which is part of his downfall. But long story. But anyway, we had to go, <laughs> to, had to, go to dry farts uh, <laughs> and, and have breakfast, at which point uh, I found out that uh, it's it's pretty weird being Stephen King's assistant and not because of him. Oh, I can only imagine the kind of nuts <laughs> that are like, you know, trying to get in touch with him at all hours of the day and night. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about all of that. Let's talk about how amazing it is now that we have this medium where you and I can meet, you know, and never really like be together in the same place, but have a friendship. Yes. And at the same time, allows us to be exposed to some of the most disturbing, weird things and some of the most horrible people. How do you manage that tension? Mm-hmm. Do you ever feel like just saying fuck it and like logging off forever? I've not gotten to that point. I have gotten to, there have been points where I've sort of walked away from various platforms Mm -hmm. at various times or various durations and just said, oh, screw this. Um, And often it's because there's some sort of negativity or or something like that. Um, And it's, it's kind of like, you know, uh, the, the famous uh, poem by Yeats, um, The Second Coming? I don't know. it. It's, it, it's a poem that he wrote during the Second World War. And it's a poem about the second coming, but it's a very dark and apocalyptic scenario. And you, you'd probably, it starts out turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Um, but there's a passage in it that says... Uh, the best lack all conviction while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Oh. And <laughs> I, when I, there, there are periods where you sort of look online, you think like, yep, the worst are full of passionate intensity. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, but, and so sometimes I think about that poem when I walk away and 
it's kind of easy to walk away from arguments or discussions online, but it's also important not to cede that space. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Uh, because I always kind of figure that if you're arguing with someone online, you try not to, I try not to get personal and sort of get down in the muck and, and roll in it. So if someone calls me a, you know, a fag or a communist or whatever, I'm not going to come back and say, well, you're a, you're a fascist or you know, you jackbooted thug you or whatever <laughs> I'm going to come up with. Right. But if even if I'm not going to change their mind, which I I totally, uh, you know, assume that if someone is sort of way over on the other end of the spectrum from where I live, I'm probably never going to get them to change their mind on things. But there are maybe people who are seeing these interactions who will see something that I write and think like, wait a second, you know, that guy's right. Maybe he maybe he has a point and sort of not get wooed over to the dark side. Whereas if all of the, the best or the good people sort of just sort of go like, I'm not getting into this, then do we just leave that space for the, you know, the worst among us yep. to just sort of dominate? Yeah, that uh, I think perspective is 110% correct. And I also think that it has something to do with your PR training. Like, I think mm. you understand that there is power in silence. There's power in speaking and your, and there's, and the greatest power comes with knowing when and where to do which, right. To yeah. be able to assess any situation and say, am I going to, how will, should I respond? How should I respond? And who is the real audience here? I mean, who's really going, am I going to be able to impact with what I'm having to say? And, um, and the, the, I think the problem that we're dealing with right now is that uh, for people like you who have actual formal training in this, this is a pretty logical conclusion. But the average person, we're all, now we're all mass communicators, right, by nature, and very few of us have actually had formal training in it. So people are just out there doing whatever they feel is right without putting a whole lot of strategic thought into it. Yeah. And I mean, the same thing goes for, for stuff in real life too. Yeah. You know, and it's, it, it's, it's funny. One of the things that my partner, Kathy and I have been talking about over the, the course of this pandemic is I'm sure you get them down where you are, but we've had a bunch of these freedom rallies uh, the the anti-maskers and such and we we're saying to ourselves uh, or to each other you know in the second world war you know people were like putting blackout curtains up in their houses and they were rationing gas and they were recycling rubber and you know doing all of these sorts of privations and in the uk i mean they had rationing for like 12 years after the war wow uh and you know, we're being asked to wear a mask to stop the spread of a virus. It's like, my freedom, how dare you? And it's like, what? Yeah. How, you know, if we had a second world war now, it'd be like, you know, I'm not blacking out my curtains. You know, I'm going to turn on all the lights in my house. But the bombs <laughs> will find you. I don't care. It's my freedom. Right. right. 
right. so it, you know, I, I think whether it's online or offline, you, you have to pick your places, but you got to show up in, in the way that you can. I agree. I do agree with that. Um, I think it's just, uh, I mean, I do feel for, cause a lot of the people that I work with through my program, I feel like they, um, look, it's not easy. It, it takes an amount, a certain amount of courage to do that. Like when you, you're going to get pushback at, at best, at worst, you're going to get, you know, people coming for you and trying to, and saying and doing some awful things to you. And, and in some cases that even bleeds over into your real life, trying to get you fired or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it is not an, it's not an easy thing to sell to somebody to be like, well, here's the deal is, yes, this is terrible. Yes, these people are terrible, but you still have to do something here um, and, and take the, you know, have the courage to stand up and say something, even when it's easier to sit back and and not say anything. That's, that is the hard sell, but I completely agree with you. If you don't do that, you really are yielding the space to the loudest and most awful people. And I think the the hard part, certainly, for guys in general, I think, is that there's also a process of of taking the bait and sort of ramping up aggressivity too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a particularly macho guy, but I've been in situations where I found myself, I can feel, you know, the the adrenaline pumping. And, you know, the hard part is not getting triggered by what you're hearing yeah yeah and staying where you need to be right and then the the other part of it for me is that i i also have issues around anxiety and i have an anxiety disorder so and my anxiety disorder will tell me to withdraw so i i have a real approach you know on one level it's like oh dairy you know (laughs) so I'm, i'm going back and forth all the time yeah, My I, I, is I, think that that's, I think that's how we all are. Frankly, I mean, yours may be exacerbated because of your condition, but I, I actually think that that exact same thing that you're describing is how we all engage. It's like this kind of um, push and pull of like anger and aggression and also fear and anxiety and not having the benefit of of really even having a human being facing us so that we can read them. So we're we're filling in all the blanks in our heads with what we don't know and what's left unsaid with our, you know, predetermined or pre predispositions, like, you know, whatever experiences we've had in the past or any conflicts we've ever had, that's filling in those blanks. It's, it's, it's a real recipe for, for the shit show that we see right now. <laughs> someone, someone online, a while ago asked for quotes about communication. Uh-huh. And my favorite quote about communication is one uh, that's attributed to George Bernard Shaw, which is the most important thing about communication is the misapprehension that it has taken place. Hmm. He was a smart guy. Yeah. 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 That it, and I mean, it's, I think what you're saying, uh, certainly you know, we're doing this, I can see your face, you can see my face. If either of us said something that was really horrifying to the other, we could tell that I could, I could see it in your eyes, I could see it in, in your expression. When it's all words on a screen uh, and you don't get to see that, 
you know, that's where so much of this, so much of the, the hatefulness online comes from people forgetting that there is someone at the end of that, right? Uh, at that communication. Uh, yeah. They think that the words are just going out into the void and not seeing there are yet, yeah, there are always going to be people who actually delight in inflicting pain on others. You know, so if, you know, if a fat joke makes some hurt someone, they'll like that. But then there are other people who just get egged on into a sort of a mob situation and, uh, I think lose sight of the fact that these things do have real life consequences and they're real, real people on the other end of it. Yeah. No, I think that's exactly right. I do. I, you know, and that's, again, that's one of the things I talk about in my, you know, the work that I do is how do we humanize these digital spaces so that we reduce the amount of, because, because this is something that we all do. Like, even those of us who consider ourselves well-trained and, you know, highly evolved, <laughs> we still do this all the time. Like I often will say things out loud or even like, you know, think things about people that I have no real idea who they are, what they're thinking. Right. I have no real idea. It's just, I catch myself in that. And, um, and I'm ashamed of myself, but it's second nature, right? It's not something that I'm doing on purpose. And so yes, there's a, there's a, there's training that goes into that, but also we are limited because of who and what we are by what we can do in these online spaces. And so it's this, there, we have to make extra effort, I think, to keep them human or to make them human. That takes a lot of effort, man. Well, how do you think it's going to be for future generations? Because I'm, I'm older than you, I grew up way before the internet. The internet was not a reality for me until well into my adult life. Uh, so I'm not a digital native the way that, you know, someone who's in high school or even younger today or university has never really lived without connectivity and virtual communication. And I, I, wonder, I wonder about what it's gonna be like for future generations. I do think that we have a learning curve that we're trying to get over. So I'm 46. So I actually did make it to adulthood without really being online at all. Um, but, you know, I was young and, and as an adult when I got into the internet and I loved it and, you know, new vistas opened up and it was all amazing. And I was incredibly optimistic about what was going to happen, <laughs> uh, which it didn't. Um, but I also have 18 year old twins. Right. So I've seen, a, you know, I've seen their, their kind of journey. And I do think that for the most part, we are still in this liminal state where this digital, digital revolution has happened, but we still have all this legacy stuff that we're trying to work with systems and organizations and institutions and just our own ideas about what it means to do things in digital spaces. Right. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of right now perfect example everybody went home for covid suddenly there's this huge rush to try to do everything online well the first thing we do is we try to reproduce everything that we do offline in an in, in online space right so what you get then are these digital conferences which are basically just eight goddamn hours a day of screen time 
<laughs> right? Like programming of like people talking at you. And like there's, and that's not even why people don't even go to conferences for the programming. They go there for the socialization. Right? Yeah, exactly. But that's what I'm talking about is we just, we're, we're thinking, you know, really in a limited way about what is possible. So we still have, we, we have a ways to go. Uh, I think as the younger generations now start to grow up they are going to be thinking about things more creatively and more differently just because they're more they're mm. used to it they understand the technology more intuitively so they they understand what's possible and they're able to dream about things that are possible that we we that don't even enter our our consciousness right now yeah. like the, the use of vr and all of that kind of stuff i mean we, we're not even touching the surface of it so i i do think that it's going to get better but that being said i also think that you know like we just just having visuals isn't going to make things better i mean i think there are plenty of of um like anybody who's <laughs> spent time in youtube comments can tell you that right that the, there are, there are plenty of people who will see somebody and still be cruel to them Right? Even even if they are conscious that this is a person. Yeah. So there's something else there that has to happen. And I'm not exactly sure from a sociology perspective what it means to build cultures online, yeah. like yeah. human cultures online. Well, it's, it's interesting. A friend of mine works in semiconductors. She's a, an engineer. And one of the things that her company has been struggling with has been the random nature of innovation where in the past someone would be on their way to the coffee machine and they you know i would see you on my way to the coffee hey amanda how's it going and, and you would say oh fine you know how are you i'm trying to work this thing this problem that i've got with this semiconductor and i don't ask me the nitty-gritty of it because i don't get it at all right. but and then the person was like you know what if you did this with that? And all of a sudden there's a solution. And when everything is Zoom meetings, there's none of those random yes. encounters yes. that end up pollinating some problem that you didn't know existed, right? And so the, her company is trying to figure out ways of making virtual randomness happen. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I think that there are things that we're not thinking about that maybe just because we've taken them for granted for so many millions of years about how human beings engage with one another and optimally. And as we try to engineer these, you know, environments, we're not, we're not doing a good enough job at this point. And um, I don't know. The other, I mean, the other thing that we're looking at in Canada, and I'm, I'm sure living in Austin is probably a similar thing, is what this whole pandemic and afterward is going to mean for cultural industries. I'm fairly involved in sort of the folk and roots music community yeah. here. And, you know, musicians have just been, you know, cut off at the knees by, by this. Uh, and, you know, there was already the whammy of streaming and the, the minuscule incomes that come from streaming as opposed to actual purchase of music, but they still had touring uh, and now touring's gone uh, and 
may come back or, you know, will come back how, and people have tried to do zoom concerts and find platforms where they can monetize things. And I know for me, and I don't know whether it's a function of just me being me or whether it's me and my generation, but I very quickly tired out of zoom concerts mm -hmm. uh and it's, it's just, not even close to the re the real thing it's not even close not the same as you know a festival or a, a club or you know a concert and going to the venue and being part of that community and seeing something happen on stage just cannot be the same for me as the the virtual environment and it's a big concern you know there are I've a lot of musician friends and they're looking and trying to figure out if there will ever be, uh, if there will ever be a career for them, you know, the, the sort of the, the folks at the top will be okay. The, the Taylor Swift's of the world right. will be okay. But the, the, the people who were relying on touring and sort of small to medium sized clubs or venues are really in jeopardy of, you know, and I know some who have gone out and gotten straight jobs if they've had the ability to do that. And the question will be if they ever come back. Wow. You know, it's, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, that is hard. Um, and I, I, I want to say that, and this is going to sound incredibly weird. Um, and I don't even care at this point. It's my fucking podcast. It can sound exactly weird. is that I do think that there's something like it, like live performance. And this is true of like uh, religious services too. It's not just about what you're seeing and it's not just about the performance. It's about the, I hate saying this word, but it's about the energy of being in that environment and, and having people around you just sort of like who, who, if you have never been to a concert, a nighttime concert on a, you know, in the summer when it's open and you're young and like the whole crowd is into it. Like if you have never experienced that, I can't explain it to you, but it is fucking magic. It is not the same as watching something on 4k, right? It is not the Can't same be. as zoom. It is not the same at all. Even if you're with other people, like that is a thing. It's a legit thing that humans do and it can't go away it can't like we won't let it we cannot let that go away it's one of well, the greatest experiences of of my life hey, look we for the last 10 years or so we've done house concerts where we bring people into our house to nice. put on concerts and you know i've seen i've seen people weep in audiences i've seen performers you know visibly emotionally affected by performances they've done and and i've had people i've had one performer who had grown up in bar bands and then moved on to sort of larger things as a guitar player and he had never done a house concert before and it was he told me it was one of the most frightening experiences of his life wow. and i was like what why and he's like everybody in the audience was looking at me and i could see them and he had spent 15, 20 years in smoky bars where there was a big lighting rig. So he had no idea who was that. He knew there were people out there because he could mm -hmm. hear them clap, 
but he never had to look anybody in the eye. Wow. Right? And so house concerts are this supercharged community event where you bring in 30, 40, 50 people into a space with minimal amplification and minimal lighting and bring someone onto a stage and say, you're all going to look at each other. I'm going to look at you. You're going to look at me and we're going to have a moment together. And it's, it can be intensely powerful. And yeah. I think maybe that's part of why the zoom thing is like, eh, mm-hmm. Meh, mm-hmm. Eh. Yeah. I, yeah. I could just sit on, sit here at my computer and watch YouTube videos for, for all this is you know yeah yeah so how let me ask you how you got into the music scene or because you Mm. are a musician right are you are you a professional musician i no no i've i've never been paid for so i i'm not a professional okay uh i joke that there are people who you pay to make music and there are people who you pay to stop stop i would be i would be the (laughs) i know what side of the fence i'd be on so i so here's the deal um always loved music, always been into music. Um, Probably when I was 35 or something, someone invited me to a house concert. I'd never heard of them before. So I went to a house concert and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And my partner and I sort of said to each other, they they could do a house concert in this space. We could probably do one in our house. And it's like, yeah, we could. And then we talked about it the way that you talk about putting a hot tub in or, uh, you know, some project that you think would be nice, but you never quite get around to. So that's what we did. We talked about it for about four years. And then the summer that I turned 40, um, I got diagnosed with bladder cancer and uh, then uh, made a, a job change as well. And it was kind of a, a bit of a, a summer of reckonings. And that point, we sort of had this discussion about, like, you know, so this is okay right now, but what if, you know, things could go bad at some point? What if, what if that, ha- you know, what do you want to have done by then? Yeah. And one of the things that I said that I wanted was to be more deeply involved in music. And so six months later we tried a first house concert and that year we did seven so wow (laughs) it yeah it sort of sunk the hook sunk deep in into us and it was uh what year was this this that would have been 2000 uh 2007 was our first concert okay so summer of 2006 was the the summer of reckonings and then 2007 was the first show and it was an introduction to the power of that small venue and the sad truth one of the sad truths that we learned about the music business was that the way that back in back in the day who knows what it's going to be like later but house concerts are venues where the artist gets all the money It's not a commercial venture for us. Right. So if you bring in 40 people and suggest to them that they pay $20 and all that money goes to the artist and then all the CD sales go to the artist and the artist stays with you so they don't have to pay for commos and they get supper and then they get breakfast the next morning, 
like you, you can send an artist away with a nice chunk of change. Yeah, that's awesome. And particularly if they're a solo act, you know, if it's one person and you send someone out with somewhere between a thousand and two thousand dollars. Wow. That's a pretty good night. Yeah. You know, if you sure. did that, if they could do that 52, 52 nights a year, you know, that's like a hundred thousand dollars a year at wow. the top end. Wow. So it's a good deal for them. Yeah. So we thought we were going to have to chase people to beg them to play. The big turnaround for us on that was we quickly ended up realizing that we were going to have people banging on our door to play. And we'd have to start curating this very carefully and learning how to say no without feeling like we were jerks for doing it. Right, right. <laughs> because there were way more people that we loved than we could accommodate. Because kind of for, for the presenter for the host kind of blows out your weekend yeah right right because right. you got to clean your house yeah and then you have 50 people come over and essentially have sort of a quiet organized party yeah and then they all leave but then you still have house guests yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they stay overnight and you feed them and you send them on their way yeah. but like so and then you got to clean your house again because there's wine glasses everywhere and <laughs> guitar picks and candle wax and whatever else you know yeah but like truly amazing experiences because we as music fans we could get to look around the musical world and within reasonable limits we could pick people and sort of go hey you want to play at our house wow. and they go like oh yeah so i would get people who i absolutely adored and fanboyed over for years and I could go like want to come to my house and play a concert <laughs> that's pretty awesome yeah. yeah and the weird the the best thing is almost all of them are like super nice people yeah yeah we've had so few negative experiences because you sort of think musicians either are they going to think they're slumming it oh I gotta go play at someone's house I can't even get into a bar right or do they, you know, are they yeah. going to sort of walk in and, you know, where's my brown M&Ms, you know, right. or whatever, you know, whatever your negative, but they, you know, we've had so many wonderful experiences with musicians wow. who we even, we went to Australia a couple of years ago. And part of the reason we went to Australia was because an Australian singer songwriter had contacted us years and years previous and said, I see that you're doing these. I'd like to come and play. And he came and played and we just became friends. And so uh, over the years we got to, at one point he said, I think I want to buy a little piece of land in Australia. And hmm. at some point I'm going to build myself a house there. And so we were like, that sounds great. And then he's like, I bought a piece of land. And then it was like, I'm starting to build the house. And eventually became, when I finish the house, you guys are going to come, right? And we're like, yup, uh -huh. we're going to come. And so we went to Australia to, in great part to go and hang out with, with David and his girlfriend and see this house that we had heard about from the, you know, before it was, before it was a conceived, before the baby was conceived, we knew yeah. about it yeah, and we got to see it. Wow. That's amazing. How yeah. many shows have you done over the years, do you think? Oh, coming up on 60, 65. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. 
Have you ever had a complaint from your neighbors? No, very fortunately, no. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Often our closest neighbors are really great friends of ours. Mm. So more often than not, they would be in the audience. Right, right. The, the best part is always, you know, the best, uh, the best strategy is always to have them in the audience. Then they can't complain. <laughs> right, right. That's awesome. <laughs> but, but I mean, and they're not, they tend not to be that loud. We've, yeah. we've had moments. We've had moments, certainly, but they tend, you know, these are folky rootsy folks. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, no one's left bleeding from the ears. <laughs> no pyrotechnics. Uh, no, not on, not on purpose. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I really appreciate you uh, taking time. This is such a great conversation and uh, you have so many interesting stories to tell. Um, I know. I want to come to Austin. Please gonna, do. Yeah. Get, yeah. get, get your virus under control. We'll get our virus under control. All and then right. I gotta, I gotta come to Antone's and uh, yeah. see some blues. Yes. Come anytime. We will take good care of you if you come here. Sweet. I promise. I mean, we don't have beaver tails, but we've got tacos. So that will work. Yeah. And barbecue. I know you like the barbecue. I I like pretty much everything except sushi. So I'm I'm your guy. I'm an omnivore. Excellent. All right. I'm, well. I'm only I'm only specific in my jam condiment uh, choices. Beyond that, I have very very promiscuous tastes. I got you. I got you. I, we got we have smuggers here. <laughs> <laughs> you will not be disappointed. Fair enough. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.